You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, August 1st, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So as I sit here, I am creating the event for uh-huh. the skeptical extravaganza of special significance that we will be running in Manchester when we go to London. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Nice. In Manchester when we go to London? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, in Manchester when we go to England. <laughs> I love it. Well, no, because I, you know what? I Legitimately, I, I'm thinking very logistically. We fly into London. We go to Manchester. I was doing like the... You know, That's fair. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Li- very linear of you, Jay. Yeah, I'm, yes. very I'm concrete. making all the arrangements, and I'm like talking to uh, the Airbnb people, and mm-hmm. you know, oh my god, so many details with these trips and all the everybody's frequent flyer numbers and pre-flight check, you know, do hickeys and global oh, access. And, and I want the kosher meal on the flight, by the way, Jay. You got so it. Well, the kosher that. meal is often way better. <laughs> <laughs> is that terrible? We shouldn't abuse this privilege. <laughs> well, I'll get you guys whatever you want. Who cares? No, no. It's I want fine. the paleo meal. Um. <laughs> you should go dressed up as a caveman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jay, most productions like TV shows have an entire department, if not, you know, one production coordinator who usually has one or two people who work with them just to do this because it is complicated between all of the frequent flyer miles and there's these things called carnets that you have to get when you um, are bringing production equipment into other countries. Like if you're a a film crew and you're bringing all these cameras, you have to A declaration, right, of the value of the carnet? It's called a carnet. Carnet. So you don't sell the equipment illegally <laughs> yeah. in the other country, which you know has happened. So Jay, I expect a document like I get when I travel for TV that has all of my call times on it. Yeah, and I like <laughs> I like mine in three different languages, just you know for the heck of it. I do have that. I've been preparing. Um, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> well, I made a, a master spreadsheet of every little jig and jag that we take and who needs to be where and when yeah we shared it with you on google docs yeah we did oh i saw that that calendar is great but it's only for our uk trip Uh, it'll fill up it'll fill up yeah okay yeah Um, that's really that's a work in progress Um, it doesn't have dragon corner no it no this is yeah that 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 one you got is just the qed one the dragon con one is going to be really easy you know like yeah but maybe we should have a full sorry we're like getting logistical Maybe we should have a full calendar because <laughs> okay. we travel so much. This year was especially a lot. And why is that? that I wonder. Yeah, we, we, might, have, we have the words on the paper. Soon. We're getting so much good feedback, you guys. I posted the other day about the book, and I can't. I was like, guys, did you know I co-wrote a book with the with the skeptics guide? We you should pre-order it, and I got. Dozens of responses of people being like, already did, and screenshots <laughs> of their of their Amazon and also their non-Amazon purchases, which made me the happies. Oh, my God. Like, as if they're lying, you know? Like, they have to screenshot it to show you. I like it, though. <laughs> hey, we we like are skeptics. It. What can I tell you? <laughs> right, I, have to say, I have to say, though, in regards to that, um, I just listened to George's show, mm-hmm. Geologic Podcast, and George gave us such an amazing – you know, talk. He just went, covered the book and talked about Aww. how good it is. And he's almost done reading it. And he was like, just saying just a lot of great stuff. And, you know, I just want to 
make sure our audience knows how much we love George and how awesome he is as a friend and a, and a co-skeptic and a co-conspirator and everything that we do. Yeah, co-conspirator is um, probably a good term. Yeah. Sure. George, <laughs> George <laughs> joining you so much. Hey, he's joining us for the extravaganza, right? Well, he's he runs it. He hosts the extravaganza. Yeah, yeah, there, is, yeah. there is no extravaganza without George. Yeah. Nice. But he's so good. We came up with a lot of new bits. Like we really – really got it finally to where I wanted the extravaganza to be. So this will be like the version that I've been trying to build it towards all these years. Hey, Evan, you think he'll tell us about those bits? I will sure. tell you yeah, guys the, about them <laughs> on the flight over. Yeah, we just went Great. We just went through this with George over the weekend. You know, we go through like the last show, how, what worked, what didn't work, what did we like, what, what's the show missing, what can we do to add? Because it's such a, you know, it's a variety show. So we can mix and match and, and trade up and trade down, do whatever we want to do to make improvements. And we've been doing that, but this time we finally iterated it to the, the level that it has all the different aspects that I want. And, I, you know, I'm just very proud of the show. So if you're yeah. interested, um, mm-hmm. we will have an Eventbrite uh, link on our homepage. I will also put it on Facebook. Um, and I will also be passing this over to Andy, who uh, is one of the people that runs QED to make sure that it can be distributed to everyone. So we'll get it out there. If you have any questions, you know, feel free to email us at info at theskepticsguide.org. But you will see that event up there very soon. And you're going to also mm. see the Dragon Con private show. That will have its own event where you could purchase these tickets on Eventbrite. And the QED private show. Let's let's give the details. So the Dragon Con private show is Saturday night. What's the uh, date then, Steve? That is September first uh, in Atlanta at Dragon Con and at eight p.m. Eight p.m. Nice. And the extravaganza is October eleventh, seven to nine p.m. in Manchester. And then the private show is what night when we're at QED? Saturday. I think it is Saturday the thirteenth, October thirteenth in Manchester um, in the evening at QED. And so uh, these were all ticketed events. This is how we're paying for the trip, basically. So um, we appreciate it. And they're always a lot of fun. They always sell out. They're, you know, the, the private shows are among our favorite shows because we get to – Definitely. You know, we're, we're all together in person. It's a much more casual kind of atmosphere. It just always comes off – much more intimate. Yeah, it always comes more, off really good. A lot more cursing too. That's true. (laughs) A lot less editing. And there'll be other events filling our schedule. Um, We are working on uh, the details of events with the Edinburgh Skeptics and the Cambridge Skeptics. And there probably will be other things happening in London. There'll be things happening uh, locally in Connecticut before and after we go on the trip. I think I mentioned last week we have a, a talk in Norwalk for the Humanist Organization. These are all going to be book signing events. We're going to have, you know, we're going to be selling books at all of them and we'll be there to sign them. So if you want to get your book signed in person, go to one of these events, not DragonCon because the book isn't out yet, but everything after October 2nd when the book comes out. Oh, and and in the UK version, all of the words will have use in them. Yes. Especially right. universe, yes. All of the words. <laughs> we demanded it. Yeah, I'm, still wor- I'm still working on my British accent version of the book, the audio book. It'll be uh, available on my website, which I'll give to you next week. <laughs> I really do want to do it, though, just as a joke. Like maybe a year after the book comes out, I'll, I will do it. You could for free. It would be fun okay. to, to do like do a chapter and then email it to our British publisher on as you say, like on spec. <laughs> oh my god! Just to see. <laughs> oh my god! 
Oh my god. We'll start an international incident with that. <laughs> we love we love everything British. Oh yeah. And in the UK, like please don't take offense. We we absolutely adore no, I love tea. I love scones. I love British dry humor. <laughs> I love all of those things at the same time. You love Doctor Who? You love Doctor Who. What's the I most British who. thing you love as an individual? So we just went to Bob and I and uh yeah, my family and Bob's girlfriend Liz well went to the Pandorica, which is a Doctor Who themed restaurant in New York oh, State. Oh, wow. And it was a lot of fun. It was really cool. A lot of attention to detail. You know, if you're like a nerd, a Doctor Who nerd, you get to, oh, look, that's from this episode. You know, it was very fun. <laughs> but the food was awesome. And on top of all that, the food was far better than it had any right to be. It's like, what? Yeah, this it was awesome. amazing. Hey. It's amazing. I want to go back just for the food. That's rare. You know, when you have a themed restaurant like that, it's more about the hokiness and all that than the food. But right. I'll go. I mean, it's rare. It's near the Bronx Zoo, right? I'll go with you guys. Jay, well, it's 45 it? minutes from the Newtown House. Okay. 45 minutes. I'm in. It's true. Like, you know, like a themed restaurant, like you just – it's the same old crap, but they rename it. Like they had <laughs> Rory's Roman Caesar salad, you know? Yeah. They, they have a themed restaurant in Los Angeles that people actually say the food's not great. But it is called Saved by the Max which I'm sure you guys won't appreciate, but your kids might. You guys remember Saved by the Bell? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, Saved by the Bell. Yeah, so they recreated uh, the Max here in L.A. So you can eat at the at their old stomping ground. But this was Saved like the, the dishes were not just, you know, themed named. They were really, really good. The, Actually the, tasty. Yeah, the, the most incredible thing was the, the blueberry cake. Um, the, huh. It was the Madame Pompadour. And... It was the most intense blueberry flavor I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah, I don't life. know what it was. It was like magic. Yeah. I don't think I would like that. I don't no, really like you, it was magic. awesome. It was awesome. Oh, I would. I would. Guys, this is not an ad either. These guys right. really just enjoyed yeah, themselves. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we talked about things that are British that we like. So, Kara. Oh, yeah. Yes. What's the word? Mm. It's not British. That would have been a good. Maybe it is British. I have no idea. Just throw you in week, it. Becomes British. Yeah. Oh, there are no U's in this word. Oh. The word this week was recommended by Steve. Which Yay. Steve? You, Steve. Oh, hey. Yeah. The word this week is stylometry, aka stylometric, if you want to change the um, the form there. And it is an interesting word. So the the simple definition, this is a Merriam-Webster definition, is that it's the study of the chronology and development of an author's work based especially on the recurrence of particular turns of expression or trends of thought. That actually is a pretty narrow definition. From everything else that I read, it's really just about studying linguistic style, generally in the form of works of writing, but um, style Geometry has been used in other types of artistic endeavors as well. And it's often used in a forensic capacity. So if there's an anonymous document or a disputed document and there's enough available that was written by the authors in question, stylometry is used to try to figure out who wrote these things. The problem is the science seems to be kind of okay. <laughs> it's getting better from what I've read. It's getting better. A lot of it has to do with big data. So the more data you have going in, the better your outcomes are. Sounds like a task for AI. Exactly. Lately, yeah, it's been AI. It's been neural net, neural nets. It's been different algorithms. So, But previously, this was more of a human convention that required a lot of sophisticated 
statistical analysis. So Steve sent me a, a cool article from FL Science called Unabomber Hunting Technique Settles Mystery of One of the Greatest Songs of All Time. So um, this has been applied to trying to track down the Unabomber based on his writings. It's been uh, applied. I'm talking about stylometry again. It's been applied to trying to figure out disputed writings from Shakespeare to the Bible to whatever. But a statistician and mathematician who are big Beatles fans uh, decided to apply this technique to the song In My Life because although most Beatles songs have um, are very clear who wrote them, like there's credit on the writing, this one has always been sort of up in the air. And McCartney takes credit for it, but people have always questioned that because it sounds like a John Lennon song. And when they ran the stylometric analysis – they found that, quote, the probability that In My Life was written by McCartney is 0.018, which basically means it's pretty convincingly a Lennon song. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of interesting. Um, but again, this it does seem that this methodology, and I shouldn't say this methodology as if it's a singular methodology because it varies from um, from who's doing it and, and how they've developed it. It's very much a garbage in, garbage out type of scientific endeavor. So with good data in, uh, the results seem to hold up. But there are plenty of examples where individuals have tried to do stylometric analysis on known works and attributed them to the wrong authors. So that is mm -hmm. something that's important. Like they did that with um, with James Joyce. Like they tried to run an analysis on Ulysses and they found that it was attributed to five different individuals. They did the same thing with some of the Federalist Papers. And so there is a lot of confusion. One thing I found in doing this research is that stylometry was used – to analyze the Book of Mormon. And there is a cont highly contested study that claims that Sidney Rigdon, who was Joseph Smith's successor, yes, successor, actually wrote it and not Joseph Smith. And that's, um, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of like controversy in the church literature around that. And I was like, well, what about the, didn't the angel write it? Wasn't it written by the, well, the, the idea the was that it was, yeah, it was on the golden tablets and the angel helped Joseph Smith translate them because he didn't speak the tablet language. That's the claim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whatevs. But anyway, <laughs> I have a stylometry anecdote. <laughs> Of course you do. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> so I, as you know, I write a lot, right? Because I have a blog. So my, my writing style is pretty out there. But this is going back 20 years now. I had to write a letter from a character that I was playing in the LARP that Evan and I were playing, right? And yep. Jay, Jay was playing in that as well. And um, so I was trying to write in the style of this character, this this fictional character that I was playing. But I completely outed myself. People like instantly <laughs> recognized my writing style, even when I was trying to disguise it. Do you know what's funny, Steve, is that when we were playing that computer-enabled mobile game, do you remember at your house, it was like you don't know Jack yeah, you don't one know of the Jack. things in that yeah. package, y your kids immediately knew when it was you. Yeah, that's true. Like you outed yourself so easily to your kids every time. They're like, that's dad. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> so your answers were sophisticated, yeah. right? And they were, I mean, it was just, they were very Steve-like answers. Well, um, Steve so isn't that funny? Yeah, he can't filter out his Steveness anymore. Like it's too, <laughs> right? It's too ingrained. 
Well, yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. I, obviously, it, what it showed is that, like, I have a certain vocabulary. Like, there are words I use and words I don't use, and it's hard mm-hmm. to get out of that that style. For sure. You, know? you have to make much more of a, of a concerted effort, you know? And so it does make me wonder if stylometry tends to have a better effect size with writers who are incredibly stylized in their writing. And the more neutral or the more that somebody has like changed styles throughout their life, it may be harder to use stylometry yeah. to credit them. Like I've I've read a lot of Stephen King and I can totally tell a Stephen King story. Like yeah. even when like there's a um, a TV show based on a Stephen King story that I haven't read and I wasn't aware it was a Stephen King story, I'm like this is totally Stephen King. You know what I mean? It just yep. There's a there's a certain vibe that just comes through that's unmistakable. That and that's such a cool thing. Like I have friends who are artists. I've definitely listened to certain types of music where some of them are more chameleon esque, more adaptive. But there are some individuals who their art is so compelling because no matter what, you always know it's them. Mm-hmm. It, there's a signature to it. That's, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Kara. Mm-hmm. Bob, yes. so how long is it going to take to terraform Mars? Oh boy, hmm. oh boy! Using using really? current technology forever. Uh, so yes, the possibility of terraforming Mars took a quite a bit of a hit this week with the release of a study by some pesky scientists <laughs> claiming that uh, current technology could not terraform Mars into an Earth-like planet. Uh, like many people had kind of assumed at this point that, yeah, we could do it if we just had, you know, wanted to spend the money, we could maybe do it. So, uh, so how annoying is that? That was kind of a bummer to read. Um, so this is from a new study in Nature Astronomy. Uh, it comes from the author's Bruce Jakoski, a planetary scientist and principal investigator for NASA's MAVEN or Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Mission. And Christopher Edwards, who is an assistant professor of planetary science at Northern Arizona University. Uh, okay, so terraforming, uh, that's a common enough concept in science fiction. I'm sure um, most everyone's heard about it. It's, Star it's, Trek II, Search for Spock. Oh, God, uh, no, so many. Uh, Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, sorry. Don't, yeah, don't even get me started. But it's a, it's a hypothetical <laughs> process of changing the environment of a planet to make it more amenable to Earth-like life, ideally uh, so that there's no need for, for any life support systems. That would be kind of like the golden – the, the the holy grail of uh, terraforming for any given planet. So to do that to Mars, um, it's actually quite simple to state uh, you know what you need to do. The two most important changes you need to make is to thicken the atmosphere and raise the temperature. That's it. That's not that's not too hard, right? How hard Piece could that of cake. be? Well, where are you going to get the atmosphere from? Well, think uh-huh. about it though. Well, it, well, Jay, it it had it had a thick CO two atmosphere millions of years ago. You know, maybe the gases are still there, and we just got to release them. Well, you why know, don't you just watch your attitude? Okay, I'm there. just asking <laughs> questions. <laughs> that's actually a, a good question. So, but think about that though. Terraforming <laughs> Mars. Uh, a more livable Mars would be an amazing boon. I mean, sure, it's a small world. It's about half as big as the Earth, but there's no oceans. So it's all landmass. And in fact, did you know that the landmass on Mars is basically the same amount as land on Earth? So no, if we made Mars, if we made Mars livable, it would kind of be like a, another Earth in, in some ways. Yeah, but um, at the same time, you know, we would melt those ice caps, and there would be oceans, and then there wouldn't be as much land as there is. Well, it depends. It, well, it depends. Would a lot of that go into the atmosphere, though, to, to thicken the atmosphere? Um, that would be the goal. I think you would rather you would you would rather have um, a thicker atmosphere rather than oceans. So how do how do you increase the pressure, the air pressure, and the temperature? Um, we're not dealing with a lot there. You know, we're talking about w- less than 1%, 6.6% uh, air pressure that we have here on Earth. 
and the temperature is nasty. It ranges from minus 125 C to uh, to 20. So that's damn cold. And of course, 20 C is kind of nice. But it, but even on a summer day in Mars at the equator, when it's 20 20 degrees at night, it gets damn cold, like minus 70. So even those days are nasty. So clearly, it, there's going to be a lot of work that would need to be done. But I think the best thing that you could do is, I mean, a greenhouse gas. That's ideal, right? You get some greenhouse gas, then uh, uh, it could actually do both. So and there's a lot of CO2 on Mars, but is there enough CO2 on Mars? That's the question. That is really the question because based on what we learned from Maven, Mars Express, and other missions, there's Maven, sim- Maven. There's <laughs> simply there's simply not enough CO2 on Mars. That is the huge Dang. bottom line here. So if we vaporized the CO2 ice at the poles, okay, we do that. The pressure would double, and that's awesome. You're doubling the pressure, but wait, it's only that only brings it to like what 1.2 percent of Earth normal. That's still squat. That's nothing. You might as well just be in a vacuum almost. So what if? Well, maybe not almost, but that's still pretty damn low. So okay, so say say you could somehow get all of the CO2 on a planet, which is a huge if, and and cannot happen with modern technology. And you release all of that into the atmosphere. What do you have then? You're still only up to seven percent of Earth's pr- air pressure at, at sea level. That's that's still horrible. Seven percent pressure is basically like the density of the atmosphere on Earth if you went eleven miles straight up. 11 like, miles up. 11 miles. Two, two, two uh, Mount Everests. 18,000 meters up. That's basically the, the density of air that we're talking about. That's what we would get. After all that work, that's what we would that's have. That's the death zone. Hey, Bob. So we don't right. want it. Bob. <laughs> yes. I can kill two birds with one stone here. What planet? I can solve two problems with one equation. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Bob, I yep. love it. I can, I can do this. All right. What planet? That we know has too much CO2. Earth. Earth. What what planet needs CO2? Mars. Done. Global warming (laughs) is gone. People can live on Mars and I can finally retire. How are you going to get it there? Yeah, what's the equation there? Leave that that's, to the engineers. I don't bother. That's the problem. That's, <laughs> oh, that, that's we were the problem. Get a mathematical I mean, formula. And you know, people will say, "Oh, you know, what about water? Water's a greenhouse, a greenhouse gas." That wouldn't help because even if you, even if you took, even if, even if you were able to get the water and get it into the atmosphere, you would need to raise the temperature of Mars to a much higher temperature than it is now before you you could even do that. So, so this is just like a really nasty problem, far nastier than we than we had thought. And don't forget there's also the old problems for terraforming mars uh first off there's no magnetic field it's it's a, it's, it's so spotty throughout the planet that it's, it's essentially it may as well not even be there so radiation is still getting in it still would be higher and uh and that lack of mag- magnetosphere don't forget that's what actually helped the sun's solar wind blow away the atmosphere in the first place so you would still have that problem. You'd go to all that work, get all this atmosphere, and then and then the solar wind's going to wipe it away. Yeah, but it could last sure for take a, millions of years. It could. So, uh, I don't think it would last that long. But still, you it would be a huge. It would it would be a major kink. I, I thought the so same Bob, thing, Steve. I think it would still be very difficult to deal with. Um, yes, Kara, what's up? I okay. <laughs> I don't want to reopen the conversation we had during our special show. Which has that come out yet? By the way, Steve. The private no. show? No. The private show. No. I want to call it the special show. Okay, guys, so I'm giving you a preview of this. Okay. I, I would love to just hear, because 
you know, I, I always listen to these, like, this is why it's going to work. This is why it's definitely not going to work. I'm usually like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yep, seems pretty hard. And my question, again, and I'm not saying this to be uh, contrarian, I think, but I am very contrary to the idea of trying to colonize um, for plenty of reasons. But my question is, why do you want to colonize Mars? Why not? It's a whole planet we could move into. Oh my! God. I don't like a why not answer. <laughs> I, I want a why. I want a why. Though, as I, the second part of that was, it's a whole planet that we could move into. There's tons of resources. <laughs> what the hell? There's a planet's well, worth no, of resources. Are. Sure, there are. I mean, I minerals. Be, you know, but it's going to kill us to get them. Yeah, well, I think, too as much Jay stuff. said, it's uh. just an engineering problem. <laughs> well, and that's and that's well, the whole point. That's the whole point of this is that it's a much much more difficult engineering problem than, than we had imagined. But Karen, my answer would be one interesting reason I think is that it's mm-hmm. it's better for humanity to live to be on two worlds instead of one because we could be taken out by a comet next month. We could be taken out by a uh, you know gamma ray burst. We could be taken out by some crazy sun activity. I mean, I mean, it's, I think it's always better to have you know your, not have all your eggs in one basket, as as they say. Um, so that's that's another classic reason why why it's good to be to have humanity on on multiple worlds. You know, I, th- I think just for just for the human spirit of adventure and, and accomplishment and, and what we could do. But I don't understand why we're so desperate to do crazy shit to avoid that from happening. It's uh, going to happen. Crazy shit is just a relative term. Yeah. Yeah. And right it now, would be, it'd be cray. It, it, right now, it absolutely would be. But you know what? People thought it was crazy to go to the moon one day. And, and as we'll see in our interview, we did it. Yeah. And they thought <laughs> it was crazy Kara, to go across the Atlantic Ocean. Kara, think of it like this. I mean, it might okay. seem really preposterous today, but 20, 30 years from now, it won't seem that crazy. It's not right. that it's preposterous. <laughs> it's the, it's not the function of me saying I don't think it's feasible. It's a function of me saying the amount of risk that we would undertake for the reward that is ideological in nature does not compute for me. Ah, That's the difference. Yes, what, about but the, Karen, what about the Apollo 8 risk that they took? Should we have not taken that risk? I don't no, if it's probably not the most popular answer, I do think the world is better for it. But I don't think we would be in chaos if we had never gone to the moon. But no, no, we wouldn't be. But 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 Kara, <laughs> no, I don't think it's like I don't, don't think, think it would have changed is, things in the grand scheme of things that much. There is something well, essential in the human drive in the human spirit that pushes yeah, us. We're explorers. I yeah, get it. Yeah. I work for a, a show on National Geographic called Explorer. It's what we do. Yeah. I totally get that. And there's a big difference between visiting and taking samples and doing science and colonizing. That's the bridge too far for me that settling. I don't get. But settling. Yeah, that's we don't fine. have to continue I wouldn't colonize. Argument, Screw that. I you wouldn't, wouldn't either. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. But I'd go visit it like Disney World damn straight. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, Bob. You could buy the all-day pass. And also another another thing care for me is the uh-huh. is is the speculation of the science and technology required to pull that off. To me that that's yeah, the that's, that's cool. the end all be all of like, that that's all yeah. I need. That's all I need to that's speculate. That's the part that I get. That's what the makes most. it fun yeah. to me. That, all know, right, getting back to that. Wait, I, I have to, to I have to, to throw one thing out a little bit more. One, right. one thing out real quick. If we didn't if we didn't react to as an example to the Sputnik launch it's yeah. very likely that the internet would not exist today, you know. So there is a a, a huge yeah, boom for humanity. Right. Even database yeah, that was database not a sophisticated answer and things. It, the, the the first true databases were when when they were tracking all the components of. The also, we may have rockets. lost I the mean, Cold War. I mean, you know. So yeah. there's that. So so, to, so, <laughs> so Steve, important. you're right. 
So, Steve, to bring this to the end, the bottom line, we're not going to release stored gases on Mars to make it more livable. That's just not going to happen. Uh, so we're going to basically uh, do one of two things. We have to bring it there, either from mm. – I think Venus is a viable candidate. Uh, I don't think Earth is, is – because it's just, it's just not enough. I mean, you, the, the amount of atmosphere you would need on such a low-gravity planet to make 15 pounds per square inch is gargantuan. It would the, – the, the height of the atmosphere would be so huge. It's really just not a really good option at all. The other option is to uh, you know have pressurized cities. And uh, I mean, there's a big thing going around now about shells, shell planets, where you would literally build a shell around the entire planet, which, which to me is just so out there. Just like, a, a really? Around a whole planet? Well, maybe let's do a city. Let's try a city first. And uh, then you'll just need much, much less atmosphere to pressurize oh, we'll a city. we'll be like little hamsters. And, Have uh, you ever gone to somebody's house who has all the hamster cages that are connected yeah. with all the tubes? That's, that's what Mars will live. be like. The habit trails, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But, if you, yeah. But, if you couldn't, but if you couldn't see the other end of that, that uh, habit trail or that, that hamster cage, eh, it's <laughs> not as much of a cage anymore when you, when, you know, when you could pretty much walk for hours and not hit the other side. Take a job. Yeah, I think definitely for the foreseeable future, the only option of settling Mars is going to be underground in, in domes in the habit trails pressurized We're, areas yeah yeah pressurized areas there's no question about that if, if the long-term goal is to terraform Mars so that you could be out in the open it's going to be very very difficult we're not going to be able to do it just by melting the ice caps on Mars like in the movie Total Recall that's not happening no no however do you guys know what the atmospheric pressure is on the top of Mount Everest, which people can get yeah. to? People, human, right. human beings right, can Steve. be alive on the top of Mount Everest. What's yeah, the sure. What's the atmospheric I, pressure? I was very surprised when I did that calculation that you'd need to be 11 miles up. Um, but it's bad. Yeah, it's, it's low. It's low. Earth sea level is 14.69 uh, PSI, and Mount Everest summit is 4.89 yeah. PSI. So it's about a third. It's so about, you can make it, but lots of people die. And not to say you can't, but lots of people die yeah, for other the, reasons. Yeah, but you, but can, you do so have the to do point a lot of is, training. If you to get, get to like, yeah, but let's say you get to like a half of a of an atmosphere on Mars, that's totally livable with a little bit of acclimation. Yeah. And you may need most people may need to have some supplemental oxygen. But then we'll eventually evolve like a an ability to live. There, and then don't Martians, you think? yeah, a few generations, Martians mm-hmm. will be totally they'll totally adapt to it. Um, we'll evolve ourselves. Oh, one uh, other thing, guys. One other thing. Don't forget, even if we make the atmospheric pressure high enough, don't forget, you're now 141 million miles from the sun compared to 93 million miles. It's still going to be cold. You know, you're still. Well, yeah. So we have to, ba- we'd have to balance the greenhouse gases. It'd have to be enough oxygen. It'd have to be the right water uh, content. So it's not Which too dry, not too wet. Which is something we can't even do on Earth. Yeah. Well, listen, <laughs> we could be able to do it, but it would take, it'd be a feat of engineering. And geopolitical will. It would take always, a massive always. will, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, but if we wanted to do it, uh, you know, we have a couple of choices. One thing that we could do is just smash a lot of uh, asteroids and comets yep. with volatiles on it into yep. Mars. Yep. Nice. And the thing is, what I was reading, Bob, is the impact itself would warm Mars. That would that energy that was released would warm Mars significantly, and then a lasting that would, warmth. Well, not, you know, not, it would last for years, but that would then melt the, you know, the ice caps and the, and that would then release some atmosphere again, not enough. But if you, if you threw enough comets into the surface of Mars, a lot of them have ammonia in it, which is nitrogen and hydrogen. 
Need nitrogen. It probably would take something like being able to set up lots of fusion reactors on the surface. Yeah, baby. Maybe, maybe powering a magnetic field, generating heat themselves, wow. maybe fusing hydrogen into oxygen. I mean, that's probably the level of technology that we're talking about. Hydrogen economy. The the what the big unknown is what is really under the surface of Mars. We have some knowledge about that from the rovers. There's a lake. But, yeah, but I mean, if we knew. <laughs> Like how much oxygen is really bound up in the minerals on the surface of Mars? What if we released that oxygen? That's more than just melting. That's like processing. That's like the aliens, you know, where you have the big industry on the surface of the planet. Yeah. yeah. You know, processing whatever raw materials and cranking out atmosphere for centuries, right? That's probably what it's going to take. Um, first of all, if we did well, slam a bunch of comets into it, we couldn't be there while that was happening. Once that settled down, if we, if we built, you know, terraforming factories on Mars, it's probably going to take centuries, you know, to get it to the point where, like, you could be out on the surface of Mars with no spacesuit. That's going to take a long time. It'd take a long time. But don't forget about mature nanotech. That could, that could shorten it from centuries, I think. Uh, yeah, we're, you're right. We're extrapolating from current technology. In a hundred years, we may have a technology that will do it in a week. But who the hell knows? Let's try to let's bring the the news items down to earth a little bit. So I, I wrote recently about this interesting study. The study itself is interesting, but also it has a lot of limitations, which I, I always think it's important to talk about to help help people understand how to delve into a scientific study. So the the study was trying to correlate eye movement and personality. Uh, and and oh again, yeah. So the idea is, could you tell something about somebody's personality? Just by looking at how they move their eyes. Does somebody have shifty eyes, you know? <laughs> oh, gosh. This is like a palm reading or something. Well, but this is using an AI learning algorithm, Evan. Mm. But And it's legit. I mean, you know, let's face it. You see people, people's personalities are somewhat reflected in the way they carry their face, The right? Their sort of baseline expressiveness. Definitely people who have empathy issues avoid eye contact. There are some things, yeah. right? That, that yeah, I think there. at the extreme ends. But the question mm. is just basic personality types. So what they did was, and there, there's literature on this, but most of it's in the lab. So these researchers wanted to take it outside of the lab, and they hooked these you know, goggles on to, to, pay, to subjects that could record their eye movements and what they're looking at um, while they went about some normal activity outside the lab, like just walking from point A to point B or shopping. Mm-hmm. And then the AI algorithm tried to correlate, you know, in in the the process that it was using to quote unquote predict. But again, I put that in scare quotes because it's not really a prediction. It's just saying if you look back statistically, how much did these eye movements predict this performance on a standardized test of personality? And this was looking for for basic personality types, specifically neuroticism extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, perceptual and perceptual curiosity and openness. I'm going to guess um, Steve before you say the answer. Yeah. I'm going to guess that yes, we are we show signs of um mental states and intent and, and all that. I mean because I think you know your eyes are one of the most expressive parts of your face and of your body and that's where we read people. That's where you can get information about what someone is feeling and, and thinking. What do you guys think? But which personality traits, Jay? Because, oh shit, right? That, this is the big five. It looks yeah. like they added one. Uh, 
openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion versus introversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Did they not? Did you say they did neuroticism or no? They did. Yeah, neroticism. Yeah. They did. Okay. Yeah. And then, but it, there was a one that was added, right? Perceptual curiosity. Perceptual curiosity. So I bet. I mean, yeah, I could see that maybe neuroticism is predicted there. I don't think openness would be. I don't think maybe conscientiousness, extroversion versus introversion. Maybe I don't think agreeableness. I don't know. It's hard to say. There might be. I think some constructs that are predicted there, but I bet you the effect size is small. Yeah, pretty much. You almost nailed it. There's a couple different. <laughs> the effect size, some did, some didn't, and the effect size was small. So in with the process that they used, chance level was 33%. So if you just guessed at random what personality each person had, you would get 33%. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then the AI, you know, from matching eye movements to personality and then using that same data to predict you know, quote unquote, predict the personality. For neuroticism, it did 40%, extroversion 48, agreeableness 45, conscientiousness 43. And those were those, and uh, perceptual curiosity 37, those were considered significant. Openness was 30, and curiosity and exploration inventory was 27. So those were not significant. They're actually a little mm-hmm. bit letter, a little bit worse than chance. That's a small effect size. You know, yeah, but but also in psychology, effect sizes are small because yeah, the, but that's not a real, that's not an excuse, that's just a reality. But that that's it's what, a reality because the variance is so complicated. That's the point. That's the yeah. point. The yeah, the variance is so high. But mm-hmm. so here's the thing: when you do this sort of internal prediction, right? You, the, it's a good idea to do some kind of independent validation, right? So you you're essentially finding the correlations by looking at a data set. But then you have to use those correlations to predict the outcome of a fresh data set. Otherwise, you're not really predicting anything. Does that make sense? So they they partially did that. What they did was they used the first half of the data to generate the correlations, and then they tested them against the second half of the data. Hmm. So that's that's mm-hmm. a good internal control. Yeah. And there, the real... Yeah, that's like split halves, right? There's yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The reliability there ranged from 0.6 to 0.8. So that's not great. It's still positive, yeah. again, with 0.5 being a coin flip, right? So you That's know, not a good... Yeah, that's not good. That's not great. By psychology standpoint. Yeah, but then they did... Where they did task reliability. So they did compared shopping to walking. And there, it was 0.39 to 0.63. It's basically nothing. So there was mm-hmm. no reliability from one task to the next. So if you combine small effect sizes with mm-hmm. not really great internal reliability and then no reliability when you go to even a slightly different task, yeah, I, 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 I got I wasn't impressed. Let me just say, right, Carol? Like, I wasn't really impressed. I wouldn't be this. impressed. I yeah. would think... Yeah, it seems like this construct would be interesting for psychopathology. Like there might be specific, you know, uh, and I don't want to pathologize, so I shouldn't say. I should say neurotypical, changes in neurotypicality. Like autism, I bet you, is highly correlated. I agree. I would would think that pathology, this would work. But just personality Mm -hmm. type, it seems like the noise overwhelmed the signal. And I was – it's, when I was writing about it, I was like, I, I admire the author's optimism when they said <laughs> that, you know, th- this construct can't yet 
you know, be, it can't be yet be used in, as a reliable mechanism of getting any kind of real world information. Right. It's yeah. like, yeah, I don't know if that yet is justified. <laughs> meaning, I don't think you just need to tweak your algorithm. I, this could be an inherent limitation of the subjects themselves. Yeah. Think about it. How are you moving your eyes? Why would we assume that personality is even the major determination of that as opposed to what task are you engaged in? What uh -huh. mood are you in? Did you just get into a fight? Are you on caffeine? Are you sleepy? Or there's probably so the confounding factors and they're not necessarily even quote unquote, they're only confounding from the point of view of this study. There's yeah. just other factors. Personality may be the smallest factor in all the factors that determine how you're moving your eyes at any given moment. What if you happen to be singing a song in your head at that moment? And really the question is like, why? Like sometimes I get frustrated. I understand for pure curiosity and maybe there is some sort of treatment mechanism that they're linking this to, but I don't even understand why they would have hypothesized this. Well, there was earlier data that suggested this okay. was the case, but it was, again, it was in the lab and it was very artificial and, again, not really that impressive. So and it may be trying to, to justify that eye movement desensitization and reprocessing gobbledygook that a lot of people try to use in psychology. I think this is like, this is just basic psychology research. I don't yeah. know that they're really talking about um, how, what the practical applications well, are. And the hard thing is that, you know, there's a lot of good literature to support these big five personality types, but yeah. even those are constructed. Yes. So even those don't have a really high level, like a really high effect size to say, you know, that I can measure somebody on whether or not they are introverted versus extroverted, like that there's an actual construct of introversion yeah. versus extra. Yeah. We have a pretty good idea of it, but it probably still doesn't. It doesn't, uh. And that's probably one of the easier ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Introversion, like extroversion. Yeah, because there, there are genetic dis disorders yeah. where people are like very extroverted consistently. So we know that could be a very dominant genetic trait, at least in, in those people. Yeah, but Steve, um, what about karma? Yeah, they, they didn't study, <laughs> they didn't study karma, Jay. But the, I Damn think it. what this reminds me of is like the alleged human lie detectors. You like yep. there's a that yeah, show. Yeah, remember I agree. that show? Like people use like micro expressions and to tell is so, like which way did they move their eyes to tell if they're yeah. lying or and oh, yeah, so, yeah. body yeah. language body experts. language experts. Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't buy it at all. I, I think don't there's either. way too more noise than signal in there. I think that's just all pseudoscience. But my fear is that pseudoscientific practitioners will try to use this kind of data to say, oh, I can change your personality yeah. and all you have to do is move your eyes a certain way. There's all these horrible, like, quote unquote, treatments that have no link to the construct, like moving your eyes around is going to help you do X or it just makes no sense. Yeah, th this is right for pseudoscientific abuse. Yeah. Absolutely Ugh. right. All right, Evan, what in the hell is a scutoid, a scutoid, scutoid? Scutoid. S C U T O I D is how it's spelled, but it's pronounced scutoid. Huh. Now, there are lots of three dimensional shapes out there. And we're going to limit the scope of this news item to three-dimensional shapes. Sorry, Bob. No sixth dimensions, cantilated six decima cubes, or ninth dimensions, <laughs> hyperbolic honeycombs. Come on, I want a hypercube. Sorry, we're talking about three-dimensional shapes only tonight. There's a lot of them. Wikipedia has a list of them. And I don't know if it's an exhaustive list, but I counted about 400 distinctly named shapes wow. in the three-dimensional realm. Yeah. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, 
geometers is the name given to mathematicians who specialize in geometry. Huh. I, wonder geometer. if we ha- I wonder if we have any geometers listening. I think they should drop us a Probably. three-dimensional email and say hello if they are. <laughs> so, but if you are a geometer, you are literally agog today because there is a 401st, <laughs> a new official shape to add to your field of study. This shape, the scutoid, which is new to math but not to nature – is the form that a group of cells in the body takes in order to pack tightly and efficiently into the tricky curves of organs. What? Yep. Our friends at Live Science are referring to a new paper published in Nature Communications, the title of which is Scutoids are a Geometrical Solution to Three-Dimensional Packing of Epithelia. Can you read that sentence that you said about body? Like, read that once again. The, the idea is that you could pack... Three-dimensional objects very close together, very efficiently in a curved space, like an organ, right? So if you're trying to pack cells in an organ, this shape will allow you to do that efficiently. So it's nature basically found the optimal, you know, shape in for epithelial cells on curved organs. I have to. What does it look like? Scientists named the shape scutoid after a triangle-shaped part of the beetle's thorax called the scutellum. The scutoid itself looks like a bent prism with five slightly slanted sides and one corner cut off. If you look carefully, it has a hexagon on one side of the cylinder, but a pentagon on the other side. Because when you cut that triangle off, you're turning one edge into two. Ah, so you're actually cutting a pentagon to make it into a hexagon. Yeah, essentially. Gotcha. Yeah, I see it. I see it. So now that one side is a hexagon, the other side is a pentagon, and up in the corner where you slice the pentagon to make a hexagon, it forms a corniferal triangle. Yes, yeah, right. so if, if you had a pentagon cylinder and you cut one corner off on one side so it becomes a hexagon, that's a scutoid. Neat. Right. This is cool. And so the idea is they, they, they can cuddle? Yes. They, they, they <laughs> nest very nicely. They make a nice lattice for things like, uh, well, epithelia, epithelial tissue. Neat. Which forms also- boundaries between environments. We've known what epithelial tissue looks like for ages. Why is this a new shape? Because it's the first time they've mathematically described it. Right. Uh, Right. Yeah, so it's not like the shape is new, like everything in science. (laughs) It's just... Yeah, I mean, looking at it, I mean, I feel like I've seen that shape before through a microscope. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, but but there are so many shapes close to it. It, Yeah, it's the first mathematical description of this specific shape. Neat. It is. Yes, not every day you get a a new shape. I like it. I, so, Evan, do you think people are going to get this shape tattooed on their faces and stuff? Oh, without question, Jay. You'll see in the next couple of weeks. It's coming, right? Have Maybe it we yet. should jump out and get it done before anybody else say we did it first. <laughs> <laughs> Seems reasonable. <laughs> um, yeah, the picture will you know, have a link to the article, actually. And the original article has a lot of diagrams, including – and then you could see, Kara, like the epithelial cells piled together. And it looks very familiar to you. Know, like, even if you just look at yeah. like how your skin cells look, you know, like the shape your skin cells have on the surface – if you mm-hmm. imagine each of those being these cylinders, it kind of gives you an idea of what we're talking about. Yeah, because we usually look at them in a in a more two dimensional way when yeah. we're looking at light microscopy. So, yeah, exactly. but when you look at the depth, that's cool. Yeah, and when neat. do we ever? Yeah, when do we ever get the chance to talk about new shapes being discovered and, and, and named? It's uh, it's yeah, rare. Right. It's cool. It's rare. Geometer is listening to us. Are celebrating. That's this right. is a day <laughs> in the sun. They, I, they, they are a gog today. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> 
Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, Lisa Mattresses. So, guys, every night I put my son to bed. The other night I'm lying in his bed and I and he goes, Daddy, I left my book downstairs that I want you to read. My wife bought him a new book. So he goes downstairs and the next thing I know – He's waking me up. It was 20 minutes later. <laughs> he fell asleep on his Lisa mattress. Wow. I never cold fall asleep like that. Never. Not on my mattress, but I'm serious, man. Like I just laid down on the pillow. I put the, pulled the blanket up and I just was looking at the ceiling. And next thing I know, he's like tapping me on the shoulder. I'm like, Dylan, what happened? You know, oh my God. Oh, my. You know, how, how much time went by? Well, Lisa has done a bunch of research to get their mattress exactly where they want it to be. 30 plus years of experience, hundreds of hours of testing to make sure that it's comfortable for every person, regardless of body shape or sleeping style. And don't forget they have their 110 program. They donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That's more than 26,000 mattresses and counting. We don't want you to miss the summer savings, so get $160 off of a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash skeptics. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash skeptics for $160 off. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, Jay, it's Who's That Noisy Time. Last week, I played this noisy. <laughs> this is the best part right here. Stop embarrassing me again. You're getting me in trouble. <laughs> you know, it's so cute. That's the giveaway, though. That's the giveaway. It sounds yeah. like that singer in Jabba's Palace at uh, yeah, Star, yeah. Wars, <laughs> Star Wars 6. Uh, that character has a name. I don't remember. So I knew so many people were going to get this one. This was just for fun. Um, well, they're all for fun, but I knew that this was really not hard to even figure out. So this, guys oh – my mm. God. All right. So let, me, let me see. Uh, we'll go down to some of these guesses here. So there was a guess. Uh, Eric Magill said, hey, guys, been listening since the Perry days, but this is my first stab at a noisy. It sounds to me like a parrot trying to sing along to a classic video game, probably an NES game. Yeah, um, that's cute. You know, not a horrible guess. No, I could see a parrot doing that. Yeah, me too. But that would be a weird parrot voice. A weird parrot voice? Yeah, that's not what parrots sound like. You're right. Yeah, that's not a parrot-like voice. I guess you're right. Yeah. Another listener, uh, and this is the winner, because there was just so many people writing in the correct answer, but but Jacob uh, Hodgegaard Lutzen got it correct first, very soon after the show came out. He says, uh, my guess for this week's Noisy is it sounds like a dog making weird vocalizations while the owner is talking back to the dog. Some music mastermind has taken a dog singing and added music where the chords and melody match the dog. I love it when people do that. Um, <laughs> love the show heard every episode yeah great job uh, Jacob you have won uh, this this noisy was sent in by a listener named J- James Truitt now this is a uh, it's called Dog Concerto in A flat minor <laughs> oh my gosh yes and this is a known dog and the people were sending me the breed of the dog. I think it's a bulldog. I can't remember now. No, Sorry. no. I thought it was a Boston Terrier. Or no, it's a French bull. It's a French bulldog. You're right. It's the French bulldog. You're right. You got it. You're French right. bulldog. So, so the, now these dogs do this. They uh, most people that own them have this problem with the dogs. They they scream. <laughs> so I asked uh, James, "Can you please find me the file without the music, just to see compare it? You know, like what's it like?" And here it is. 
cannot keep interrupting. No, 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 no. I'm having a conversation. Oh my gosh. I'm right here, but <laughs> bizarre. You stop embarrassing me again. <laughs> the dog is so good. I don't know if I would learn to love that or absolutely hate it. Hate, hate, unbridled hatred. Oh no, because you'd look at its face and then be like, oh yeah, the dog is cute it, when he's doing it. You know, he. It, it is, is a pretty, funny video. Pretty damn cute. So, guys, I had two people send me in this noisy, and they sent me the noisy so freakishly at the same time that instead of picking one of them, I just want to say thanks to both Justin Freeman and Jeremy C. for sending in this week's noisy. I hope you like it. Check it out. And there you have it. To UFO landing. Yeah, that's right. Kudos and Kang from The Simpsons. <laughs> Greetings, <Right>? Earthlings. <laughs> you know so, their names? Wow, uh, I've well, I, I've never met them, but yeah. That's some good trivia. Thanks. It is good trivia. So, yeah. guys, if you think you know what this week's noisy is, or you'd like to say hi, or you heard an awesome noise, email me at WTN at theskepticsguy.org. All right, we have a great interview coming up with Robert Curson all about Apollo 8. So, let's go to that interview now. We are joined now by Robert Curson. Robert, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you so much for having me. A real pleasure for me. And you're joining us in part to talk about your new book, Rocket Men, which I've been enjoying. It's really a, a great read. So tell us about the book. What's it about? Rocket Men is the story of mankind's first journey ever away from home and its first arrival at a new world, our most ancient companion, the moon. It is the story of Apollo 8 which is the first time human beings ever went to the moon. It's an incredible story. It's one I knew virtually nothing about when I had a very happy accident discovering it about three years ago, but which quickly appeared to me to be the greatest space story of all time and really one of the great yeah. human exploration stories of all time. Mm. Yeah, without a doubt. Now, but, so Apollo 8 orbited the moon, but didn't, was not a lander, right? That was, this is before Apollo 11, obviously. But still, yeah, it's, ama it's amazing how many stories there are in the space program overall and the Apollo program in particular. But what, what, what was it specifically that made you focus on Apollo 8? Well, it only had its start when I was showing friends around the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And one of the great um, joys of the museum is it's almost impossible to find your way out when you're done. And I stumbled across this, this spacecraft there um, that looked at once to have come from the past and the future. It was an amazing thing to behold. And I went and looked at the placard and it said, this is the uh, command module of Apollo 8, which made mankind's first journey to the moon. And I knew nothing about it. You know, I knew about Apollo 11, which was mankind's first landing on the moon, and Apollo 13, where Tom Hanks portrays Jim Lovell in a mission that almost didn't make it back to Earth. But I knew nothing about this, so I went home and researched it, and within 15 minutes, no kidding, it was not more than that, I realized I was looking at one of the greatest stories ever. And it wasn't just me who thought so. Every astronaut I saw who was interviewed seemed to speak in a different tone about Apollo 8. They spoke reverentially about it, even in tones they didn't use for their own lunar missions. The, the refrain was always the same. It was Apollo, when 
when we went to the moon, we already knew that it could be done. But when Apollo 8 went, they went with only 16 weeks of preparation, not the usual year to year and a half. Everything was sudden and everything they did was for the first time. Nobody knew that any of it could be done when Apollo 8 went. And yet uh, they went despite incredible risks and myriad dangers that are almost unthinkable today. Wow. So why did they uh, only give them 16 weeks? What was the pressure behind that decision? Well, in, in the early summer of 1968, things were going very badly at NASA. The lunar module, you know, the spidery landing craft that astronauts would use to um, exit the orbiting spacecraft, go to the surface of the moon and return, had fallen behind due to design and production problems. And that threatened to slow down the entire Apollo program. And that was a big problem on a lot of fronts. The two of which, two most important of which were, it threatened to um, put President Kennedy's uh, promise to the country, which he made in 1961, to land men on the moon by the end of the decade out of reach. And uh, maybe even worse than that, it threatened to allow the Soviets to send the first human beings to the moon. And in fact, a top secret CIA memo that had come into NASA in mid-1968 warned that the Soviets were ready to do just that as early as the end of 1968. And that appeared to be a huge disaster for NASA. The real purpose for much of the space program, the push for Apollo, was to beat the Soviets to the moon. And so this was a a sudden emergency. And uh, it fell to the beautiful and incredible mind of a, a quiet NASA manager named George Lowe, who had an epiphany one day in the summer of 1968. Uh, he knew that everything at NASA went in steps, everything. But he also knew that if he could skip a few steps uh, and send Apollo 8, instead of just in its test flight in low Earth orbit, but all the way to the moon without a lunar module, NASA could learn almost everything about going to the moon. They could keep the program moving. They had an outside chance to beat the Soviets to the moon, and they could keep the whole Apollo program on schedule. The problem was the risks were so uh, unthinkable that uh, it took guts to even just speak this plan. I'll explain a couple of the risks right away. Sending Apollo 8 suddenly in just 16 weeks time meant not only that NASA had to get ready in such a short time and the astronauts had to get ready, but that Apollo 8 was going to fly the Saturn V rocket, the only rocket powerful enough to deliver human beings to the moon. And by the way, can you believe that 50 years later, as we talk today, the most powerful machine ever built, still to this day, the most powerful machine ever built. That fact alone just blows my mind. What the hell have we been doing for decades? In in (laughs) technology, things are obsolete in a month. And this thing, 50 years later, is still the most powerful machine human beings have ever assembled. But at the time, it had only flown twice, both times in unmanned tests. And the second test had failed spectacularly. So now NASA is talking about third flight ever of the Saturn V carrying three men with wives and children, not 100 miles into over the Earth's surface into uh, low Earth orbit, or even 853 miles above the surface of the Earth, which at the time was the world altitude record, but 240,000 miles away to the moon. And back. And, also, and back. and they're going to go without the lunar module, because of course, as we mentioned, the lunar module is not ready. That meant that the lunar module uh, could not be used for its secondary purpose, which was as a backup engine in case anything went wrong with the astronaut's primary engine. That means if anything went wrong when the astronauts are at the moon, if that engine doesn't fire or if it misfires or doesn't perform right, the astronauts can go plummeting into the lunar surface. They can fly off into eternal solar orbit, remain in lunar orbit. So the risks are almost uh, unimaginable at the time. And when 
Imagine if they stayed in orbit all these years. Would would we have left them in orbit? Just this orbiting mausoleum type of thing? I don't know. That's a good question. Well, you know, NASA had discussed plans about rescues, but it was just too expensive to prepare another Saturn V and risk another astronaut. So Mm -hmm. if something went wrong, they were going to stay out there forever. And so um, when the when the managers brought this plan to James Webb, who was the head of um, the whole organization and explained it to him, he recited the risks, as we've just discussed. And then he, uh, he he asked them, are you out of your minds? And he reminded them of one other risk they hadn't considered. And he said, if anything happens to these three men, uh, no one will ever look at the moon the same again. And no one had thought of that. But the same, of course, was true for Christmas. Because George Lowe's plan for Apollo 8 called for the spacecraft to be in orbit around the moon on Christmas Eve, and Christmas Day of 1968, already had been one of the worst years in the country's history. Yeah, it really was. A, it sounds like it was a turning point that, you know, the Apollo program and maybe even NASA really lived or died with the Apollo 8 mission. Do you, do you agree with that? Absolutely. If anything went wrong here, that was going to be the end. Remember that in January of 1967, not even two years before this, NASA had suffered a terrible tragedy on the launch pad during a test when the Apollo 1 astronauts uh, were burned wow. alive inside the command module. That itself almost put an end to NASA. People thought... This organization is moving way too fast. It's on way too uh, dangerous a collision course trying to get to the moon before the Soviets. Um, maybe this program is not worth all this risk. Here you had three heroic men dead just on the launch pad for a test. I have mad respect for the astronauts themselves and for strapping themselves to the rocket. And, you know, these guys were exceptional people to be able to do that knowing that they were going to die. Yes, these are three of the most ordinary, nice, friendly, warm guys you'd ever want to meet. And yet, at the same time, they are really composed of a different DNA. They do have the right stuff, and they are made of something different from most of the rest of us. And they knew full well the risks they were undertaking. In fact, when Bill Anders came home and told his wife about the new mission, uh, she asked for an honest assessment of, of the risks, and he thought it over. And he told her, I think that there's a one-third chance of a successful mission, a one-third chance that uh, the mission fails, but we somehow make it back home, and a one-third chance that we never come back. And and his wife, Valerie, was very satisfied with those odds. She understood what they were undertaking. And to her, that seemed like a good deal. So this is what they were looking at. And Anders at the time had five kids. So you can imagine the, the kind of risk. But these guys were, you know, the top test pilots and fighter pilots the country had, and they were used to seeing people die. And when I asked them about what it felt like to look mortality in the eye as they climbed aboard this uh, ship, they said their brothers in Vietnam were dying every day, and they felt this was a privilege for them. Yeah, they very much thought that this was part of the same uh, same conflict. From you know, from, from reading what, what you wrote about them, it was not just going to the moon, this was all about, as you say, the existential struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union. Absolutely. It was especially to Frank Borman, who had joined NASA for one reason and one reason only, and that was to defeat the Soviet Union on the most important battlefield in the world, and that was space. Uh, To him, it was all about uh, good versus evil and about the goodness of the United States. And he believed the Soviets were really an existential threat to us. And this was the most he could do and the best he could do to help uh, the United States win 
um, the battle for survival. So at some point, they decided that they weren't just going to uh, go to the moon and come back. They were going to try to orbit the moon, which was technically a lot more difficult. Why did they make that decision? Right. Magnitude's more difficult. Remember, the Soviets only are planning to whip around the moon. They are not going to go into orbit. But George Lowe and Chris Kraft, when they conceived this plan, believed that as long as they were going to go all this way and take all this risk and climb aboard that Saturn V and calculate trajectories they hadn't finalized yet and do all the rest of it, they may as well try to go the whole way. And to get into orbit was magnitudes more difficult, but they believed it would really help them learn how to go to the moon when they finally launched that lunar landing mission. And so that was uh, a requirement. Now, Borman believed uh, all right, we're going to take the risk, let's go into orbit, but let's orbit once and get our asses home. That's how he explained it to me. But they said, no, listen, as, as long as we're out there, let's do everything we can. So they finally settled on 10 orbits over 20 hours, about two hours in orbit. And that was going to start on Christmas Eve of 1968. So, you know, I'm curious because you'd figure once they spent the fuel to get into orbit, what's the difference between one orbit and 10 orbits other than the time? Well, as Borman explains it, every minute extra they're out there is another minute where any number of things could go wrong. And so he wants to do the bare minimum because the, the less, the, the least number of things they can do means the least risk they're taking. Oh, of course. Okay. And, so, yeah. and so that's what he wants to do. He thinks one orbit around the moon and they have defeated the Soviet Union. But the engineers and the manager were saying, look, this is the first time any of us is going to be there. We can do so much while we're there. We can learn so much so that by the time what would be Apollo 11 goes, they will have the benefit and we will have the benefit of all this experience. So stay as long as you can. And Borman uh, grudgingly agreed for the to the 10 orbits. And then, you know, isn't that cool to think that the, they're in the ship and they're writing on paper, doing calculations and math and talking to mission control and figuring, you know, down to the last second, figuring things out, you know, like imagine that, you know, they're, they're it blows my mind to think that they had to do their own calculations on mission critical things right there and then. Right there couldn't and they, then. Couldn't they, couldn't they ask Siri to do the calculations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, was, Siri Bill, back then was called the slide rule, Bob. <laughs> that's right. And Bill Anders told me that his old iPhone, he doesn't even have a, you know, a modern iPhone. He has the one a couple generations old. Uh, he, he likes to point out to me that that iPhone in his pocket has way more computing power than sure. all of Mission Control oh, had. Yeah, way times. more. I know. It's ridiculous. It's a, it's a supercomputer to them back in the, you know, back in the late 60s. That was a supercomputer. Sure. Absolutely. Robert, what was the most surprising thing you learned when you were researching your book? Well, I think um, one, of the, one of the great surprises was just how important the wives of the astronauts were. It's something I hadn't considered when I was going in. I was so overwhelmed with the wondrousness and the, the risk of the flight and the, the historic nature of it. But, you know, none of the three astronauts could really answer many questions without uh, attributing so much of their success to their wives. And as I got to learn those stories, it was very clear that these women were every bit as heroic and courageous. It took unbelievable courage to keep the family together, to make the house nice and stress-free for the astronauts and to deal with the media and everything else that was required. So that was one thing. Anders, who uh, was in charge of photography for the, for the mission, uh, had a telephoto lens and a color magazine, a film, and he gets this photograph of the earth rising and it changes them. When each man described to me what it meant to see the earth, it was probably the most moving thing I'd ever heard. Each from each of them, uh, it was uh, difficult for me to speak after listening to them describe what it meant to see 
this very delicate blue jewel, the only color in the universe, where everything we cared about, everything we loved, everything that meant anything to any of us was on that one planet. From that distance, you couldn't see countries, you couldn't see war, you just saw us. And we were looking at ourselves for the first time. And that photograph became Earthrise, and it became uh, the start of the environmental movement and Earth Day and it's still arguably the most important photograph ever taken. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of a universal thing that, um, you know, seeing the Earth in total from outer space is uh, an emotional experience that changes every astronaut who gets to see that. It really does. And every one of them reports, uh, you know, the wonder and the, you know, the, the humbleness you, you experience when you see it. But only Apollo 8 saw it for the first time. And everything that happened on this flight was for the first time. If you go down the list of the things that the astronauts did that no one else had ever done, it, it just never ends. But this was maybe the most important of them all, to see ourselves as one. It's the first time human beings ever saw the Earth as a complete sphere. And so uh, this was a very, very um, poignant moment for these astronauts. And then when they brought the photograph back, I think it changed a lot of people. And, of course, the, the success of this mission – you know, spoiler, it was a total success, but that allowed the Apollo mission to, to go forward and, you know, ultimately resulting in Apollo 11 and the rest of the Apollo missions. And from what we hear, the, you know, the, the close call they had on Apollo 13 pretty much was responsible for closing down the, the eventually closing down the Apollo missions. It's fantastic to talk to Jim Lovell, who lives only about 20 minutes from me here in Chicago, mm. to, to listen to him talk about how a problem on the way back from, the moon on Apollo 8. He made a mistake that could have ended in disaster. And it was an incredible save that uh, the astronauts and NASA made. It's a thrilling story. I had no idea about that being another, just another incredible part of the Apollo 8 mission. But he explains that learning to fix that problem aboard Apollo 8 helped him fix the problems aboard Apollo 13. So this mission just never ends. Wow. In its importance, and it's incredible. When I talked to Mike Collins, who was on Apollo 11, and I asked him, which do you think was more important, Apollo 8 or Apollo 11? He thought about it hard, and he said, I think you'd have to give it to Apollo 8 in the end. And I think that's how a lot of the astronauts feel. It was, uh, as I said before, the first time we ever left home. And as mm -hmm. Collins said to me, it was about leaving, and leaving is the most important thing in in all human DNA, it's our, you know, it's our instinct to explore and to go beyond. Well, Robert, I'm really enjoying the book. It's a, it's a fascinating read. Again, I mean, I love the Apollo program and, you know, doing a deep dive on, on this pivotal mission is really, really fascinating. Uh, so the book is Rocket Men. It's available, obviously, on Amazon, ebook, as well as uh, hard copy, and it's also Audible. Right, available in all those formats. Did you do the? Did you read the Audible book? I read the author's note and a note on sources, and then the great Ray Porter, who'd been an astronaut fanatic since he was a little boy, uh, read the story, and I think he's uh, in the best in the business. So it's a it's a really nice package they put together on audio. Uh, great. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really uh, looking forward to finishing the book. Oh, it's been a true honor to be with you. Thank you Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one is fake. Can you believe it? <laughs> 
Then I challenge my fellow skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. You guys ready for this week? Yes. Yes. All right. All right. Three regular news items. Here we go. Item number one. A new study finds that training on a task of working memory improves performance on similar memory tasks. Item number two. Researchers modeling the Great Pyramids of Giza find that they are capable of concentrating electromagnetic waves in their interior chambers. And item number three, researchers find that great tits, that's a bird, Jay, (laughs) (laughs) with a brain 0.1% the size of chimpanzees, performed almost as well on a test of self-control. It's so funny, though. Uh, Kara, why don't you go first? Okay. A new study finds training on a task of working memory improves performance on similar memory tasks. What do you mean? You mean both both of them are working memory tasks, just one yeah. is one just, thing. Just the different. Yeah, they're slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. Working on your working memory improves your working memory. I don't I don't disagree with that. Maybe. If that's the fiction, like cool, I guess. We're not good at improving our working memory would be the outcome. I don't know. That one seems too too simple. Researchers modeling the Great Pyramids of Giza find that they're capable of concentrating electromagnetic waves in their interior chambers. Meaning that they're like made out of mu metal? I'm so confused by this one. Are you saying that they can release electromagnetic waves inside the chambers of Giza and they don't dissipate very quickly? They dissipate slowly enough that they concentrate? No, like if you expose them to electromagnetic waves, they would concentrate those waves in the interior chambers of the pyramid. Oh, like if they pass across the pyramid completely, they'll tend to concentrate in the chambers. Okay, I think I get it. Researchers find that great tits. (laughs) <laughs> with a brain 0.1% the size of chimpanzees performed almost as well on a test of self-control. Crap, I don't know anything about great tits. Are they corvids? You're not going to tell me that, but I assume they're not. I'll, I'll give you that. They're not corvids. They're not corvids. Okay. You're giving me that because you know it's going to confuse me. I'm going to assume that they're geniuses, although their name is Tit. But maybe blue-footed boobies are also smart. The one that seems unlikely is the Great Pyramids of Giza one. It seems like some sort of weird pseudoscience that Deepak Chopra would use to like talk about energy conservation in your chakras. But it might be science. And it seems like the most obvious one is the working memory one. So that one might be the fiction. That's <laughs> so hard. I'll say, the, I'll say the Great Tit one is the fiction. Damn it. Okay, Evan. First one, training on a task of working memory improves performance on a similar memory tasks. This reminds me of the time we spoke about uh, luminosity, brain training, right? Lumosity. Oh, is it lumosity? It's not luminosity. It's lumosity, yeah. Very forgettable product. Um, and, I th- and <laughs> Yes. And I think we, when we talked about it, it uh, obviously we knocked it down for what it was, and but I think the coral there was some sort of correlation there in which if you do if you get good at one thing you're getting good at that one thing only but not all the other sorts of related tasks that would go along with the mind training something along those lines. So that would mean that this goes against our thoughts Arr. on the lumosity thing. So maybe this one's the fiction uh based on my 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 faulty memory. Uh the next one <laughs> Uh, the Great Pyramids of Giza, they're capable of concentrating electromagnetic waves in their interior chambers. Okay, well, they may be capable of it. I mean, kind of doubt that that was what they had in mind 5,000 whatever years ago. 
<laughs> when they were building these things, you know, if we did this, we could concentrate electromagnetic waves this way. Yeah, great. No. What did George say? This is that um, Cleopatra is closer to the space shuttle than the building of the pyramids in time. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Isn't that yeah, wild? Cool. That's, that's yeah. crazy. That's crazy. Um, so I don't, I don't have a problem with this one. I'm sure. And then the last one, researchers find the uh, great tit with the brain 0.1% size of chimpanzees. Almost as well as a test of self-control. Yeah, you'd think that this one's going to be the fiction, right? Stop it, Evan. Stop it. Well, you know what? I've, over the years, the whole, you know, bird monkey debate and Chimpanzees story are comes not back. monkeys, damn it. I, I understand. I'm talking, I'm, I'm only using the, those <laughs> words in the context of our ongoing sort of theme of birds and, uh, and ape-like creatures and com- making comparisons and stuff. And always... Uh, the birds perform better than I expect them to perform in a lot of these cases. So I'm going to have to say I think that one's going to be true. Uh, so I think it's the uh, the working memory one. I think that one's going to turn out to be the fiction. Crap. Okay, Bob. The great tits, yeah, I'm kind of buying it. it that You know, the one about the great tits, that third one. You like the great tits? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm buying that. I'm buying that. I mean, I, th- there's examples uh, – in nature of uh, of surprisingly small brains doing amazing things, like bees, for example, they they perform some amazing stuff, and they've got a, they've got a brain about as big as the tiny ball at the end of a pen. So so I can kind of I can kind of see that one. Uh, the pyramids, yeah, I mean it's a pyramid. I could see a pyramid concentrating stuff into its interior. I mean uh, that kind of makes sense. But what doesn't make sense uh, nearly as much as the other two. Is the is the short term is the memory one? I'm kind of Damn surprised. It. I'm trying. To, <laughs> I, hey, I mean, the fact that you didn't choose a care is actually making me really doubt myself. But my understanding of of working memory is that I mean, that is like you p- humans have like these like what is it like seven chunks of memory that can fit in in working memory, and that's it. I mean, I've never actually come across anything that led me to believe that that can be improved. Sure, you can improve your memory, but that's more of of, of, of short term. I mean, of long term memory and consolidation, not. Not really your short-term memory. Um, so, yeah, that one's rubbing me the wrong way, especially compared to the other two. So I'll have to, I'm going to I'll go with uh, Evan and say that short-term memory is fiction. And Jay. So I will uh, take these in reverse order. So researchers find great tits, okay? <laughs> okay. Thank, thank you, Evan. You're welcome, um, Jay. And fell a little flat. Almost as well in the test <laughs> of self-control. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't nice well state. supported. Yeah. So um, I would say here, I think this one is science because, you know, I know a fair amount about bird intelligence and the things that they can do. I, I can see that there that this is true without really knowing the mechanism about why, you know, birds with such small brains could be as intelligent as they are. But birds are um, – rate very highly with it. Not all birds, of course, but some birds rate very highly with intelligence. So this one doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility at all. Researchers modeling the Great Pyramids of Giza. So capable of concentrating electromagnetic waves in their interior chambers. They were modeling the pyramids and they found that the electromagnetic waves like stayed inside the building or something. It's kind of weird, but maybe the rock is just so thick or maybe something was growing on the inside of the rock that was keeping the electromagnetic waves inside. You know, but I, I'm looking at this first one here about the uh, the brain training stuff, and Evan did bring up a good point. They were saying that working memory improves performance on similar memory tasks. But what would be similar to working memory? No, they're both working memory. It's just a different task. Right. Oh, then I know this one's the fake. 
It's fake. Tony, it's the fake. All right. Is that Italian? That was good, Jay. That was Brooklyn Italian, yeah. All right. Well, so the guys went with number one, the working memory and Kara with the great tits. So let's start with the middle. Researchers modeling the Great Pyramids of Giza find that they are capable of concentrating electromagnetic waves in their interior chambers. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Science. Uh, you know, yay. Steve, you know why I think we were confused about it? Yeah. The they is ambiguous in the way it's written. Is it that the researchers are capable of concentrating the waves, or is it that the pyramids are capable? No, the of pyramids are. Con- are con- yeah, yeah. Now, I get that now, but I think when like Jay and I both read it wrong the first time. Yes. Yep. No, because it's, they are capable of concentrating electromagnetic waves in their interior chambers. The researchers don't have interior chambers. No, I know, but the first they could be for the researchers, and the second no, they. The, the sentence the doesn't make sense that way. But in <laughs> any lots case, of sentences are written. <laughs> they put the ball in their trunk. <laughs> it's trunk. There you go. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> this was just a model, right? They didn't actually do an experiment. It's only a model. Why? Because they, they were just modeling it in a computer. And it's capable. Doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean it will or it does concentrate on electromagnetic waves. In order to get the pyramid to concentrate the electromagnetic waves, you have to expose it to EMF with a frequency that resonates with the size of the pyramid itself, which yeah. would be which would be radio frequency. Hmm. So you know what that means? A never-ending playlist? It means that the pyramids <laughs> are a radio for speaking with God. Oh, my God. <laughs> nice. Oh, you got to be kidding. Which God? So, <laughs> right. Obviously, Horus. Oh, um, right. Or maybe Ra. Could be Ra. Not Osiris, um, though. It's probably yes, Ra. Yeah, no, Osiris can go screw him, so. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, say that. this one has like, you know, pseudoscience written all over it. Like they're going to cream when they see this. You know anyone who's lingering, <laughs> who's clinging to any kind of pyramid power bullshit is going to be all over this news item. Oh, yeah. But they were just saying, all right, if you take the shape of the pyramids, you know, pyramid shaped and you expose it to rate to emf of a frequency that resonates with the length of its side or whatever then that would have a tendency to concentrate those waves in the interior and at its base and at its base as well so i don't think this has any practical application as far as the pyramids go but what the researchers are talking about is they want to design uh at the nanoscale like structures or crystals or whatever that are pyramid shaped that they can use uh, to resonate EMF at those frequencies for whatever reason. You know, that's, that's the quote unquote practical application of But this. those would be crazy high frequency. Yeah. There'd be a lot higher frequency. Yeah. yeah. But probably only interesting because they're using the great pyramid as their substrate. You know, if it were just, Oh, look, pyramid shapes will tend to concentrate waves in the middle. Who cares, right? I mean, that's interesting, but it's very wonky mathematical kind of modeling. But because they used the pyramid as their their model, it, ma- it made it a news item. All right. Let's yeah, go. we already know the outcome. Let's go to number one. <laughs> Don't make any assumptions. 
No, I didn't. I looked it up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like as soon Spoilers. as Evan said that, All it, right. was, it was so obvious, and I just didn't even make the link to the hey, Lumosity. Yeah, yeah. A new study, and that was definitely what I was thinking when I wrote this yeah. one. Like, let's see how much they've been paying attention to like the six times I've talked about this news uh, item over the oh, last five hey, years. A new study finds that training on a task of working memory improves performance on similar memory tasks. Bob, your analysis was a little off. It doesn't say improving really? short-term memory. It's just improving on a task that involves working memory. And Did I the f- misread it again? The Shoot. fact is, the fact is, they did improve on the task that they were trained on. Yeah, but not the other one. But but Damn not it. on any other task. So yeah, so this one is the fiction. Because the, yeah, the study showed that they, in fact, did not uh, improve on even very closely related tasks yeah. involving the same kind of memory ability. That sucks. Yeah, so this is uh, – the, the, the title of the article is Converging Evidence Against the Transferable Benefits of Online Brain Training on Cognitive Function. So I have been writing about and talking about this for years on the SGU and on, on Neurologica, and this is just another piece of evidence, another study showing that, yeah, brain training is not transferable. You get good at the thing that you do. Yeah. That's it. Gosh. And it's like so obvious as soon as Evan said – Lumosity or games, or like you said, online yeah. tasks. Yeah, I yeah. feel, and you were so smart to leave all those keywords out. And they were, and they were trying to create, they were trying to maximize the probability of producing transferable benefits in this study, and they still did not generalize. Now, again, this is, this doesn't mean every single study on this topic shows exactly that, but the there is a question about whether or not there is some transferability to closely related tasks. And it probably depends on the type of core task that it is. Like three-dimensional reasoning may transfer a little bit. Memory mm. doesn't though. IQ doesn't. Nothing, nothing, you know, brain training doesn't improve IQ, doesn't improve memory. This is where Bob's analysis is actually relevant. Uh, but yeah, hand-eye coordination uh, does. We we've seen a lot. Hand-eye of coordination, that. yeah, that 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 can, yeah, that that can mm-hmm. transfer to closely related tasks like, you know, training surgeons by playing video games. You know, um, but that's much more of like a cerebellar thing anyway. Like it's so beyond. Uh, so yeah, this, like, it's, quote, it's not memory. Cognitive. Yeah, it's not memory. Yeah. It's not g- general cognition. It's a specific. It's a specific kind of uh, of processing. So yeah, this this is in line with and extends previous evidence. And it just it really does scuttle the whole brain training notion. Uh, if you want to get good at something, practice that thing you know, that, mm-hmm. that you want to do. Okay, all of this means that researchers find that great tits with a brain 0.1% the size of chimpanzees performed almost as well on a test of self-control as the chimpanzees is implied. That one is science. Of course it's science because birds rule. And <laughs> yes. Tell me about a great tit. What are they? It's a bird, um, yeah, obviously. It's not, yeah, it's not a raven or, or a jay or in that class at all. It has a much smaller brain. It's not considered to be as smart as those animals, as those birds. And so it was very surprising to the researchers when it performed, you know, as well as ravens and chimps almost. On this test. Now, I didn't say they have as much self-control. I was careful to say they performed as almost as well on a test of self-control because as Karen and I were discussing, these are constructs, right? We, we don't really know that this is exactly reflecting self-control, but the test is interesting. I always find the constructs 
fascinating. In, in this case, what they did was they had a clear cylinder, right, like glass, and they put food in the cylinder so that you can see the food, but you can't get to the food directly. You have to sort of find where the opening is and then go that way. And so the, the, it's designed to see like, will the animal go right for the food, indicating a lack of self-control? Or will they go, okay, wait a minute. I can't get to the food this way. How do I get? And then figure out that they have to go through the top of the cylinder to get to the food. Um, so the great tits were able to not peck against the glass, but go for the opening 80% of the time, which is almost as good as chimpanzees do on a similar test. So. Hmm. Wow, there's like a small percentage of chimpanzees who just beat against the glass yeah. all the time. That's so sad. <laughs> but this is, this is, this is very rare among animals. Most animals do not perform well on this test. They go right for the food. I bet you some humans wouldn't. Oh, exactly right. <laughs> so chimpanzees do and ravens do and then related birds. Like, so yeah, great apes and and corvids. They're the ones who do well on that test. This is really one of the few animals outside of those groups who did well, and that was surprising. Especially have they since done it they, with cetaceans? Uh, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. But They, have they such, would probably they do have, well, too. They, the great tits have such tiny brains. Even It's even a lot smaller than a raven, you know? Yeah. The brain-to-body ratio thing doesn't always hold, does it? Yeah, yeah. It well, like, the, generally does, but wouldn't that mean that something like uh, chihuahuas are like the smartest creatures on the planet? No, I think a ba- <laughs> an, infant, an infant human. That's yeah, an yeah. interesting discussion is the relationship between brain size to body size and how that relates to intel- overall intelligence. First of mm. all, how are you measuring the intelligence? Right. And mm. it depends on what size the animal is and what uh, order they're in. Mammals are different Mammal. than birds are different than fish. Uh, but also, as we discussed about a year ago now, um, it's not just all about size. It's all about the neuronal concentration I wonder if they looked at the great tits. I don't think they, that wasn't part of that study. So again, they have like 3% of a raven's brain. So it's very tiny, but maybe they have, you know, a more, a higher concentration of neurons or what, or maybe they just have certain problem solving algorithms in their brain and it's a very efficient use of the neurons that they have. Could be. Yeah. It's interesting because they don't really even have a cortex. Like bird brains are so different than yeah. mammalian brains. They're very different. I mean they do have a cortex, but it's very they don't have what we it's, have. They don't have the same They don't have structures. a neocortex. It's yeah, they don't have a thin. neocortex. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we talked about that recently with the with the the crows. Um mm. that they um they you know had showed extreme problem solving and they're clearly using different brain structures than primates are. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a neuronal parallel evolution in a way, like just utilizing different brain structures for similar types of abilities. But it's complicated, you know, because again, we can't, it doesn't really make sense to think of intelligence as a unidimensional thing, right? Um, and oh, so for sure. You can't, We're yeah. so anthropocentric when we think of intelligence. Right. But you know what this does is it makes all of those great scenes in Jurassic Park that much more resonant. Hmm. No, it's true. <laughs> I mean, the dinosaurs with small brains could have had extreme problem solving like some modern birds do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, not, it's, not un, it's not implausible that um, velociraptors were smart hunters, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Right. So we better be careful, you know, when we bring those suckers back, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Jay, before we leave, uh, I want to let everyone know that we updated the goals on our Patreon page. You could take a look at, you know, we had to, we rejiggered it because of just 
the experience of now how like the time frame of like people joining, et cetera, and what we actually need to get stuff done. So the things I want to point out though, when we hit 4,000 patrons, we are going to do a 12 hour live streaming SGU show. And when we reach 5,500 patrons, Guys, you ready for this? 24-hour live streaming SGU show. Whoa. <laughs> oh, no. That's okay. it. It's happening. You heard, you heard but, it here first. And, okay. yeah, but we're trying. Don't say, it's not a definite, but no I promise. try. Yeah, say it, Jay. I, I shudder with anticipation. As you all know, I, I probably uh, have talked very much about not wanting to ever do another 24-hour show. But however, in this unique circumstance if i can pull this off i want to go back to the star trek museum which is the exact duplicate of the original series star trek the original series set Mm -hmm. and if i can coordinate with the guy who owns and manages that to let us be there for 24 hours we will do it and we will be broadcasting from various places on the star trek set and one of the ideas that we had was that we recreate 15 minutes of a star trek episode Oh, my God. Kara? Kara's living nightmare. My worst nightmare. You're stuck on the bridge of the Enterprise with four nerds for 24 hours. I'd rather be on the bridge of the Enterprise than... Like, I'm glad that it's you want to go Star Trek and not, like, some Lord of the Rings nonsense. So thank (laughs) you for that. Nonsense. 24 hours from Rivendell, that would be awesome. Yeah, you can dress up yeah, like an God. elf, Kara. And we, <laughs> we, we will definitely invite slash sell tickets for people to actually come and be there with us. Um, it could be epic. It could, yeah, it could so be epic. That, so, well, it could be because we don't have commitment from them yet. So it might be – they might not sign off on 24 hours. We might have to do that for the 12-hour one. If we can get them to sign off on 24 hours, we'd rather do it for that one. The other one, well, otherwise we'll do it in our studio, which is looking pretty swanky, you know, these days. Um, so that'll be fine. But if we can pull it off, it would be fun to do a, I mentioned a 24 hour marathon from the bridge of the enterprise. How cool oh would that God. be? Oh, <laughs> yes. Just forget it, man. 48 right. half Steve, hour episodes. Steve, we, we would have the whole set. You I know. know. What I'm saying? But oh, our God. listeners can make it happen. They could make it happen. Yes. Please, guys. Please. all right well thank you all for joining me this week thank you brother thanks dave thank you and until next week this is your skeptics guide to the universe skeptics guide to the universe is produced by sgu productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 